Summer's over for Canada and most of the United States. That means a return soon to the epicenter of the thoroughbred industry's 2019 earthquake, Santa Anita. But it's not just what's been happening on track there that's worrisome. It's also the off-the-track drama involving the track's operator, the Stronach Group, that could have a huge impact on the entire racing industry. We'll explain. Plus, we remember one of the sport's most notable jockeys, Randy Romero, who passed away recently at the age of 61. It's all straight ahead on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll silent. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit-bombing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can get us as well on SoundCloud, YouTube, TuneIn.com or your podcatcher app. And of course, in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup and yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at americasbestracing.net. As the story goes, Frank Stronach arrived in Canada from his native Austria in 1954 with $200 in his pocket and the hope of opening a tool and die shop. That shop eventually became the auto parts company Magna International, which made Stronach a billionaire. Frank then got involved with thoroughbred racing, owning both race horses and eventually race tracks. Today, the Stronach Group, the spin-off company for many of the family's racetrack operations, owns Gulfstream Park in Florida, both tracks in Maryland, Laurel and Pimlico, home of the Preakness, and of course, the great race place Santa Anita, among others. Over the years, some of Frank Stronach's racetrack plans have elicited quizzical looks, with one example being the $30 million price tag for the Pegasus statue outside of Gulfstream. His daughter Belinda, though, has done more than look quizzically. Belinda is now the chairman and president of the Stronach Group, and she is suing her father for over $500 million. She claims that Frank's pet projects, as she calls them, have lost the company huge sums of money. Frank has countersued, saying that Belinda and a former business partner appropriated family funds for their personal benefit. Good grief! What will this family feud mean for the Stronic Group and, by extension, for the entire thoroughbred industry here in the United States, since TSG controls so many influential tracks? Two people who are quite familiar with the business dealings of the Stronic Group are writers Joe O'Connor and Barbara Schechter of the Financial Post, a Canadian-based publication. And we welcome Ms. Schechter and Mr. O'Connor here to win the gate. Let's start with Mr. O'Connor. Each side accuses the other of financial malfeasance. What facts do we know through all of this bluster? Well, what we do know is uh, what the suit alleges. And what um, Frank is accusing Belinda of is misappropriating funds and essentially locking him out of the company that his money built. And what Belinda is saying is that's not the case. And 
in her countersuit, she's saying, well, you know, the truth is here is that my dad, and I'm quoting, is uh, she's called him idiosyncr- idiosyncratic and often unprofitable side ventures, meaning that she believes that her father has uh, frittered away money on vanity projects such as an organic beef farm in California and on a fancy bike, electric bike, and on other things. And that has put the company in jeopardy and that in order to rescue the company's fortunes, she has to keep her father at arm's length from it. It's a giant he said, uh, she, she said. As long as that's floating out there and working its way through the court system, it's going to mean some uncertainty. I think the the thing that is sure is that there's going to be continued uncertainty until this gets resolved. So, Ms. Schechter, financial controversy has followed the Stronachs for quite a while, even going back to 2010 when they were paid basically to leave Magna. And it seemed like a little unusual, to say the least. I mean, what do things like this say about the nature of their business dealings and their character, especially as relates to their employees? Well, I mean, it was very unusual, and it was quite uh, controversial in Canada just because of the the quantum, the amount of money that they paid to collapse this dual share structure, which uh, gave the Stronics way more votes per share than other shareholders. I mean, it's, it was a common structure in Canada, and it's even sort of picking up steam right now in the U.S. and a little bit back in Canada because it allows sort of families and entrepreneurs to retain control. But in the case of Magna, and at the time, it was an unpopular structure and companies were being pressured to drop it. And Stronach agreed to collapse it and and leave the company, but he demanded what uh, some had called a king's ransom to do so. And he was not willing to bend on that. It ended up, you know, going before a securities commission and also through the courts with uh, some of the large institutional shareholders like pensions demanding that, you know, that he take less money, that it was far too much money, but he was unyielding. And uh, he walked away with exactly what he had negotiated with the company. Who cares what the institutional shareholders who've been there for varying amounts of time want? So it was the same when he was running the company. He did things his way. He took, you know, large paychecks and defended them, telling people that maybe he even deserved more than he was taking. So certainly uh, strong-willed and, uh, you know, willing to, you know, keep pushing for his way and getting it. So that certainly is the type of personality we're talking about here. It's uh, it's not a shrinking violet uh, on either of their accounts. What about the potential cultural difference at work here since you have the self-made father and the daughter who was born into wealth? Well, I think that's a huge dividing line. You see Frank, who was a child in wartime Austria, who comes to Canada penniless uh, or near to it and has the moxie to build a company that goes uh, through the roof in terms of its value. He built this thing with his hands, and I met with him for lunch going back into the spring, and what he said at the time, and he wasn't going to go deep into the weeds of the actual legal case. He wasn't going to hurl mud necessarily at his daughter, but what he did say quite clearly and what was evident in our conversation was that he truly believed that he built this. This was his baby, as it were, and that his children, his daughter and his son and their children should be entitled to some of that wealth, but in the form of an inheritance, in the form of 
what it, I think the figure he quoted to me was like, I, I will give my children $100 million each and they can go and build their own legacy. Whereas Frank sees TSG, he sees his, the racetracks that TSG owns. He sees the empire as having been built by his money and he believes that he should have the keys to that empire and be able to drive it in whichever direction he chooses and that his children and his grandchildren given the funds, he wouldn't leave them nothing, should go out and create their own legacies. So it's a culture of, I did this, I built this, this is mine, I'm Frank Stronach, versus a culture of, I've been born into this, I might be a lot like my father, I'm will, I am willful like my father, I have ideas of my own that might be different from my father. So I think this is an a situation that is exclusive to the Stronach families. I think, though, uber-wealthy families often like to fight their battles, not in the courts, where all of us can see the nitty-gritty and the ugliness of it play out. But there's definitely a cultural divide between the man who built the company and the daughter who he chose to run it. And speaking of ugly, this is really ugly. I mean, Meshechter, this dispute has really split the Stronach family right down the middle. When it comes to the family on one side, you have Frank Stronach, his wife, and son Andrew, who was suing his sister. On the other side, there's Belinda, the sister, Belinda's daughter, and Frank's granddaughter, Nicole, and her husband, Frank Walker. Frank's father, Don, is the CEO of Magna International. So how much does this feud legitimately threaten the stability of the Stronach family, and by extension, the stability of the Stronach group? Well, I would say, obviously, it's it's going to have an impact. I know early on in our reporting, Joe and I were hearing that there was a real sort of effort to insulate Stronic Group from this. There was a real sort of spin that it was carrying on business as usual and that this was a personality dispute in a way rather than a business uh, impacting dispute. So that was certainly how they were trying to set things up so that they could isolate this. But we've already talked about given the personalities involved and how sort of hands-on and intricately involved the Stronics tend to be, it's it's hard to think of it being immune from any crossover from, from this dispute in terms of the business. But they do have separate sort of legal counsel, separate teams handling this. So they certainly are trying to keep it separate as far as the ongoing operations of Stronic Group, which does continue on. We're talking with Barbara Schechter and Joe O'Connor, who write about business for the National Post of Canada. Mr. O'Connor, we mentioned in our open how influential the Stronach Group is in American horse racing, given all the tracks that they own and operate. I mean, what we're getting at here is what does this family feud mean for the future of the Stronach Group operating tracks like Santa Anita? Well, I think, uh, and I would couch this in saying that I'm somewhat speculating here, but also guiding what I'm saying based upon my conversations with, with Frank Stronach. And I think what it means for the future of horse racing is that when you've got a beautiful, glittering jewel of a piece of property like Santa Anita, that Frank Stronach wants to preserve as a horse racing facility. But playing against that is a very real value of property in Southern California. Is the reality that Santa Anita is half an hour from downtown Los Angeles, is that it's located in Arcadia, California, one of the most affluent 
small towns or not small towns, small cities near Los Angeles, California, and that you've got a horse racing facility sitting on several hundred acres of land, and you've got a horse racing facility in an industry that it's not growing. Horse racing isn't dead yet, but it's not growing. And the betting handler in the industry, meaning the amount of money wagered on horse races, peaked in 2001. So where's your growth going to be as the Strana Group? What's your long-term game? What's the best interest of the company to be profitable in the future? And an argument can be made, and it's an argument that Frank makes is, his suspicion is that the Belinda camp, and Belinda's camp would deny this uh, vociferously, but his argument would be that they just want to turn these racetracks into condos and the like. They just want them to end up as uh, developments. And if you played that game, if you played out a development game on a piece of property like Santa Anita, uh, you'd be looking at a piece of property, piece of land that's worth not in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but in the billions of dollars. So I think these are the two tensions within the company. What's the future of the company? Is it as a development company, land development company, or is it as a horse racing company? And I think the divide there is between Belinda and Frank. Frank and Belinda may be at odds, but we've talked about how they're clearly cut from the same risk-taking, shoot-from-the-hip kind of cloth. It was Frank who started the unique concept behind the Pegasus World Cup at Gulfstream. It's Belinda who came out with a number of procedural changes when the death rate at Santa Anita ramped up over the winter, including proposing to do away with the whip, even though none of the horses who died did so while deep in the stretch where a rider would be using the whip. So... How does that stronic way, that stubborn way, work when dealing with an issue that some observers say has threatened the very existence of the American thoroughbred industry? Well, I would look at it like that's a very easy thing to look at and say, well, we've got to do away with that. It's simple animal welfare here. You're hurting the animal. You're whipping the animal. They don't need to be whipped, even if there's no connection made between the whipping and the breakdown of the animals. It's just optics. You can look at that. It's an easy, easy PR throw for Belinda and TSG to say, well, let's experiment with no whips at Santa Anita. And I don't think that's her being stubborn. I think that's her being just canny and aware that her industry is embattled and relies in part on the goodwill of the California public, of the governor, of the government of the day. And that if making your stakeholders a little unhappy by pulling the whip out of the jockey's hands is going to actually ensure that your business stays uh, immune from any sort of heavy-handed government intervention, then uh, so be it. Take the whip out of their hands and make your jockeys unhappy, make your owners unhappy, but keep the people who uh, legislate happy. If, if what Joe is saying is is indeed what the drive was behind that, it makes a lot of sense given her time in the business world and in the political field where, you know, optics are huge and responses are quick and you have to look like you're doing something. You know, doing nothing or appearing to be doing nothing is going to do more harm more quickly than uh, getting out in front of an issue. So I think in that sense, uh, given who we're talking about, that does make some sense, and it would not be surprising if that was sort of the rationale. 
I have a few bosses here at ESPN who do things, I think, just for the sake of looking like they're doing something. So I can definitely, did I say that? I'm sorry. I can, I can commiserate. Well, thank you so much. I don't think the story is going away anytime soon, but we appreciate your insight. Thank you both so much. No problem. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Yeah, cheers. He was the winning rider in one of Thoroughbred Racing's most famous races. We remember one of the sport's most notable jockeys, Randy Romero, in just a moment. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. Winning colors, turns for home here at Churchill Downs, holding on by two. Goodbye, Halo is charging hard. Here comes Personal Ensign, unleashing a furious one on the outside, but it is still winning colors. Goodbye, Halo. Personal Ensign, a sixteenth of a mile from the wire. Winning colors is there. Personal Ensign, a dramatic finish, and here is the wire. Carson was facing her first defeat, but in those final 110 courageous yards, she certainly proved herself a champion this afternoon. It was one of the most dramatic horse races ever run in this country. Personal Ensign finishing her career undefeated 13-0 when Hall of Fame jockey Randy Romero willed her to victory in the 1988 Breeders' Cup Distaff at Churchill Downs. It was one of the, if not the, high point of Randy Romero's career. Romero rode for 26 years, but battled all kinds of health issues for far longer than that, and Randy Romero succumbed to those injuries and illnesses this past week at the age of 61. Romero was, to borrow a song title, Born on the Bayou in Louisiana, and that's where he died as well. He grew up riding on the so-called bush tracks, where rules were merely suggestions, and a rider learned toughness at an early age. Randy's father, who was a state trooper, raised thoroughbreds and quarter horses. Supposedly, the movie Casey's Shadow, which was released in 1978, was loosely based on the Romero family's experiences with horses. We'll get into the many accomplishments and adversities of Randy Romero as we welcome back to In the Gate one of his best friends, former jockey and accomplished writer, author, and chaplain, Eddie Donnelly. You were there when Personal Ensign won that 1988 distaff. What can you say about his ride on her that day? Well, it, it was an extraordinary ride. At no time during the race, I was there waiting for the Dallas Morning News, which was a real, real pleasure to be there. And uh, Personal Ensign didn't look like she could win at any time. Of course, she was going for the 13th straight victory in her last race and she didn't look like she could win at the quarter pole she didn't look like she could win at the eighth pole she didn't look like she could win at the 16th pole or the 70 yard pole <laughs> and she had no time did she look like she was going to win but somehow she got up in the final stride to win by a nose and uh, i was so happy for randy because that was a was a great memory and i think next to that the greatest memory was 1983, of course, Randy was severely burned over 60% of his body in a bizarre hot box fire at uh, Oakwan Park. He'd come in to ride a horse for Shug McGee. He'd been one of the leading riders at Santa Anita that year. And oh, he didn't think he was going to make it back. He was airlifted to a burn center in Galveston, Texas, a very famous one. And oh, the pain he underwent was immense, but then. How many months later, I think it was six months later, 
that happened in January, February. I think that fall he came back and he was riding a horse in his first race back. Preparia, I think the name of the horse was, at Louisiana Downs for his brother, Gerald. And the horse won. <laughs> and that was another treasured memory, I mean, to go through what he went through and to come back. And doctors told him he was never going to ride again. But I think a whole slew of doctors probably said that they ran at some point in his career. But he always came back and did and won the first race back. And that's another incredible memory I have of, of Randy. We'll get back to that incident in a moment, actually, but I wanted to get back to that incredible ride on Personal Ensign because I remember that he had Personal Ensign standing almost still for like 10 minutes by herself on the track before that race. She had hardly warmed up, and Randy had said that she seemed so relaxed he didn't want to bother her. What do you think of that? Well, I, I personally, I don't know. I rode twelve, thirteen thousand races. I, I don't think I rode any that I didn't warm up. I wanted to, just, you know, I wanted to see how they felt just for my own benefit. But Randy was a consummate horseman. I mean, Randy had an insight into horses. Everybody said he had an insight into fillies. And uh, he, oddly enough, the last time I talked to Randy, well, I, I talked to him a couple minutes right the day he died, but. He was unconscious, of course, but uh, when I stopped in Louisiana and talked to Randy, and that was one of the questions I asked. I guess I did the last kind of interview that he had, but I said, Randy, you always had a reputation for riding fillies. Was there an insight there that you had? He said, I don't know. He said, I think I just got on the right ones. <laughs> but that was interesting that he didn't warm that horse up. But if Randy didn't think the horse needed to warm up, then, you know, I'd have to go with it. And the proof is in the pudding. I don't know if you run that race 10 times, he he might win one. But I think he won it. She won it the only way she could possibly win it. And I think it all, uh, lots of classic races out there, but I don't know if there's a race around that has much more historical significance than, than that one. And he had won it the year before. Yes, yeah, Sacagawea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sacagawea. Yeah, he did ride some great, great fillies. He was known for rider of uh, females, and I don't know, they're a different animal. Now, Romero was probably known more for his overcoming of injuries, as we started to allude to, than even his wins, and he won over four thousand races. But the injury he was most known for suffering came just two years after Personal Ensign's win in the very same race, the Breeders' Cup Distaff. A warning. This is tough to listen to. on to win it and 55,000 here in shocked disbelief as goal for one has broken down at the 16th hole. What do you remember about how that whole day unfolded? He talks a lot about the race with go for one. He said the best day in his life racing was when personal ensign won and the worst day of his life was when go for one fell. That was a historic race. I mean, Bayacoa who was a, oh boy, she was a champion. 
and older. I, I'm not sure she was four or five at the time, but Gopher Watton was only three-year-old in the distaff, and she had Bayakoa beaten. Bayakoa had given her the best, and uh, she had put her away. I don't think there's any doubt she was going to win. And she broke down, of course, just a few strides before the finish line. And that was probably, according to Randy, the worst day in his life. He broke eight ribs and got up to ride, uh, what was it, Vesta, the Canadian Triple Crown winner in the Classic. She finished sixth. And today I was talking to Randy. I was talking to him about regrets. And he said, uh, you know, he said, I don't have any regrets. You know, mainly said, I, I did. I did the best I could. I tried on every one I rode, and he did. But he said, you know, he said, if I had it to do all over again, I don't think I would have ridden that horse after breaking eight ribs. Whether that affected the finish or not, I don't know. It's up to conjecture. But uh, anybody break eight ribs and get up and ride another race, that's extraordinary in itself. We're talking with Eddie Donnelly, good friend of the late jockey Randy Romero, and an accomplished author and writer and chaplain, as well as a former jockey himself. Romero needed several blood transfusions after that hot box incident at Oakland Park that we mentioned, and it took about a year for all of that to unfold. But one of those batches of blood was tainted with hepatitis C, which damaged his liver. How did that affect him? Well, uh, I remember Randy telling me once, and it's in an article I wrote that's that's online, should anybody want to check it out on Blood Horse, Randy Romero in the race of his life. <sighs> he told me that it affected his thinking. It affected his thoughts. This was in 2015. He says, um, he, I remember him telling me, if I don't get a liver transplant, I'm going to die. It's that simple. And he didn't get the transplant. And of course, he did die. Uh but that was a, I was writing for the Dallas Morning News at, at Oakland Park when that happened. I, I remember it very well. And um, Randy had come in to ride a, a horse for Sugar Begay. He had a cassette. And, and uh, Randy, like most riders, Randy had to reduce. And he was also a Randy. Also, he, Randy was a Hebron. And uh, as a, was I, I, I think. And I, I sweated. I think I counted four tons of sweat went down the hot box straight in my life, and I think probably more than that for Randy. But uh, he was in the, um, what we call the hot box, reducing, and there was a metal cabinet there, the only place I've ever seen it in my life. And I had actually ridden at Oakland, was in that same thing, but it's a metal cabinet uh, lined with rows of light bulbs. And uh, you crawl inside and sit there, and the light bulbs heat, and the uh, metal cabinet holds you in. Well, anyway, a lot of people, riders who reduce, put alcohol on their body to open their pores so you can sweat better uh, because you only have a limited amount of time. I used to be able to lose about three pounds in an hour, and I think that's probably true of most riders in, in the sweating room. And Randy put on alcohol, went inside that thing, and somehow one of the light bulbs was broken. He ignited, and he ran out, and there was a, another jockey, quite a good one, David Petcher was uh, there and saw him on fire and guided him into the shower and turned the shower on, no doubt saving uh, Randy's life, one of the most bizarre incidents in the history of race riding, I think. He suffered third-degree burns over something like 60% of his body. 
and that was when he received the blood. And in those days, I don't think they checked blood for uh, hepatitis C. And yeah, you know, Randy, I've never seen anybody have as much bad luck. I think he was like, the, remember the guy in the old handicap uh, cartoon who had the black cloud that followed him around on his head? <laughs> I certainly do. And uh, that was kind of like Randy. I mean, the guy just couldn't catch a break. In his whole career, he told me once that he estimated, and I think he looked at statistics, and I think it was substantiated, that his entire career, he, he spent at least six years on the ground healing from injuries. I mean, as spectacular as his career was, there's no telling, you know, what it would have been had he not been so often injured. I mean, if you're a jockey, you're going to get hurt. It's just part of the game. And uh, I think I broke 13 bones, and like a lot of jockeys who tell you that, how many bones they broke, consider myself lucky, walked away. But Randy... I don't know. I, I think he broke I mean, somewhere between 20 and 25 bones. He had something like, uh, he says 38, but I, I think it's easily over 30 surgeries that he had. I mean, he had so much metal in his body. I don't think he could walk through a metal detector at the airport. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious about that. But uh, the guy just kept going. He just kept going. And I remember when I talked to him, uh, Shortly before his death, he told me that uh, a lot of people tried to talk him into, into quitting, you know, in these last few years. These last few years weren't very good either, but he said he knew he could still ride and he was going to hang on as long as he could, and he did. He, he hung in there. I think it's hard, very, for all athletes to climb, to climb down from uh, that arena, but I think it's particularly hard for jockeys. Why do you say that? Well, we're all short guys, and I, when you're short and you grow up, you you almost have to develop a bravado to uh, compete with everybody else, and you, you develop this competitive mentality. I mean, you're the. I remember I was the person that had to climb the highest tree and swim the river in the middle of the night to prove that I was as big and good as everybody else. And when you're on top of that horse, you're uh, you're very tall, and you're up there. But when you step down, you're a foot shorter than the crowd. And it's quite an adjustment. I also read that, uh, and I hadn't known this, that while he was waiting for that uh, liver and kidney transplant you were referencing, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And that's why he couldn't withstand the transplant was because of the stomach cancer. What do you know about that? Oh, that was a sad story. Randy and I talked over the phone like, you know, at least once a month. And so I was, you know, talked to Randy during that whole time. And uh, he pretty much knew that he needed the liver and the kidney transplant. And it entailed something like 11 hour surgery. And uh, he was on the donor list for many years. It was really, it was in and out of Boschner Hospital in New Orleans, great hospital. And he pretty much knew he, did, he needed it. And at one point, there was a lady, Nicole Simmons, who came forward and was ready to die, uh, to uh, donate both, although I don't think he can. But they couldn't find uh, a catheter that was small enough for a long time uh, because Randy was so small. And, and size, according to what I've read, does make a difference in transplants. So Randy's size was against him in getting a transplant. And then 
He was already, he had the ambulance ready. He was living in Erath. They were going to fly him to Oshner to do the, do the surgery. And then in the midst of that, he developed stomach cancer. And Randy, as I said, like a lot of riders, including myself, was a you know heavy-duty heaver. I used to regurgitate 10 times a day to make weight. Making weight was a lot harder than riding races. Good Lord. And uh, Randy was in the same boat. And I don't know. I, I just wonder. I haven't. I don't know if there's a correlation between you know constant vomiting and stomach cancer or not. But I'm sure love to find out. There may be somebody out there listening who knows more than I do about that subject. I am not that person. I'm not either. And, and um, you know, it took me three years to stop because you just can't stop. You can't allow yourself to be full. After you know, when you're full, you just feel guilty. I mean, when I rode, and Randy was the same way, I mean, I could tell you any time, day or night, within a pound of what I weigh. I mean, uh, weight was just what you live with, and you knew. And Randy was the same way, and Randy was a, had to reduce very hard. I mean, he wasn't extraordinarily tall or big, but he was like a lot of riders. I guess maybe 25% of riders do still regurgitate very heavily, and I... And Randy was, was one of those. So Randy not only had to battle injuries, he he had to fight weight also uh, in, in the same time. You know, jockeys used to wear, I used, for a time, I used to see jockeys in T-shirts at the racetrack wear a T-shirt with no fear on it. Well, I'm here to tell you, Randy didn't have to wear that T-shirt. I mean, everybody that knew him knew he, knew he didn't have any fear. I don't think he was afraid of anything. And, I don't think he was afraid of dying. I mean, he suffered a lot of pain at the end, but he told me he wasn't afraid of dying. And Randy was a person of faith, and uh, he thought he was going to heaven, and I believe he's absolutely right. Our guest here, Eddie Donnelly, who, as you've heard, is a former writer, is also vice president of Jockeys and Jeans, a yearly fundraiser to benefit the Permanently Disabled Jockeys Fund. What was Randy Romero's involvement with the uh, PDJF? Randy always wanted to come, and and Randy couldn't for one reason or another, health reason. Randy actually tried to go to events, those kinds of events where you give back. And I remember one time he went to, uh, I think it was a Legends or one of those Triple Crown things Belmont Park has. And when you do dialysis three times weekly, and he did it for like 19 years, which is extraordinary in itself, you have what's called a port in your arm uh, because otherwise it's a very heavy-duty gauge needle that requires a fresh stick unless you have one of these things every time you do dialysis. And anyway, he came home, got on the ground, was in Lafayette, was, was staying with his mom who was living there at the time. He goes upstairs to go to uh, take a nap. The port ruptures. One of his brothers come in and finds him in a pool of blood. He almost bled to death. So... That was the kind of thing that Randy had to fight. And Jockeys and Jeans, he always had a, had a heart for Jockeys and Jeans. And, and we raised funds for the Permanently Disabled Jockeys Fund, which, which gives a $1,000 a month stipend to uh, some 60 permanently disabled riders. But Randy did come to our event in 2018, year before last, at Canterbury Park, and he flew in. And he had to do dialysis while he was there. Actually, Randy did dialysis the same day he received, uh, he was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2010 at Saratoga. But anyway, he came and he wanted to come and, and 
My gosh, you look at him, and he, he was basically yellow. He, was, he looked just like jaundice because he had one kidney, and, and the only reason it survived was because of dialysis three times a week. We ship in six permanently disabled riders, and we have about 15 Hall of Fame riders there to honor them. And Randy was one of those Hall of Fame riders. And I remember distinctly that Randy, Randy made it a point to talk to each one, to sit down one-on-one and, and just sit down and talk to them and encourage them. Which, you know, given Randy's background, was incredible because if he was, he wasn't technically, but he was basically a disabled rider. You know, Barry, I, I, I know a lot of people have done a lot of good stuff in horse racing for other people and, and horse racing itself. But I don't know anybody that uh, gave more or laid down any more of their lives for the horse racing industry than did Randy Romero. And uh, incidentally, we're working to um, to try to get a stakes race named after him, and, and uh, we think that's going to happen. Not ready to talk about that at this point, but uh, it would sure be appropriate. Take me through those last few days. <sighs> well, I happened to stop, and he was very lucid that day. And I wrote a little bit about it on Facebook, but it was very lucid. He was still undergoing some pain. He he dealt with pain. I don't know. It seemed like he was just destined to deal with pain. I don't know. I don't know anybody at all. And I've met a lot of hospital patients that have dealt with the amount of pain that man has for as long as he did. And he was still dealing with pain. But he was lucid and very verbal. And he he wanted to sit down and talk about some memories. And we did. And it was a touching time for me. And he kind of cited each and. I was going to come back and interview him on camera. Actually, I called Corey Johnson. Corey and I produced a video that uh, won the Clips Award one time called Ride Like the Wind in 1986, I think. So I called Corey, and Corey was going to pay for a TV crew to come down and film him. Two days later, I think I called him, and he had taken a turn for the worse, and he died three days later. But I was so thankful that uh, I got to see him when he was lucid, when he was talking, and, you know, we hugged, and... He talked about his life, and he talked about his faith, and he talked about his family. He was a very strong family guy. He was divorced. He had one son, Randy uh, II, and interestingly enough, Randy died like at 1203, and Randy uh, II uh, had his third son uh, like 12 hours after Randy died. Really? Yeah, but the day he died, and I had talked to the family, and and I called him up on the day that afternoon, Randy died that night, and I prayed with the family, and, and I asked them to put the phone to uh, Randy and, and let me let me pray and talk to Randy, uh, say my final goodbyes. Whew. I get a little, a little choked up even talking about that now, Barry. But uh, uh, they did. And being a hospital chaplain, you know, I pray with a lot of folks on their way out. But it was sure different with Randy because uh, I just know Randy so long, so many different ways. And the last words I said to him, uh, Pat Day has a has a phrase that I kind of pick up and says, "I'll see you here, there, or in the air." And uh, that was my word, last words to uh, Randy. And got a call from Brother Gerald today, and I'm going to his funeral on the tenth down there, and, and be one of the speakers. And I'm honored to do that, although. 
when Pat is uh, Pat Day is going to uh, it looks like uh, is going to officiate that service, which I know is going to be hard for Pat because Pat and I both you know talked to Randy incessantly and we're on the phone with Randy and I had visited him several times. I visited him down in Egraph a few years ago and it was interesting when I put up a Facebook post for Randy and asked for prayer. Five hundred people would, would pray for Randy. He's so well. Loved and, and remembered in the racing industry is just incredible. And the post I put up about my uh, last visit with him, I think it had 600 shares. So I, I don't know what that accounts to in people, but Randy is loved by a lot of folks out there. Well, I hope he can figure out where he's going now because I read that while he was terrific at finding the finish line, he wasn't so great when it came <laughs> to driving directions anywhere else. What do you remember about that? <laughs> I don't know. I read that somewhere. I don't know that somebody was talking about uh, his driving habits that he that he drove like he rode races. And you know, it's uh, it, it, in a sense, it is an obvious. You know, some of the same things you you detect patterns where people are moving, where the openings are, where the seam is, and get in that seam and then look for that next seam. And I heard that Randy drove the same way. <laughs> I never watched it personally, but he was a very competitive person. I mean, Randy was just, I mean, he was just competitive, but you know, despite all that competition, I mean, he was a consummate race rider. I mean, he knew where he was all the time. I don't think he ever fell on heels except when when one guy dropped in on top of him. And, and he was also, uh, as far as I know, had a reputation as being a very clean rider. I don't think he was uh, just suspended a lot. He was just, and he, and he had a, he had a, you know, he told me that the day that I talked to him, he told me, he said, you know, he, he said, I think God just gave me a talent for this. You know, I grew up with it. There was, there was never any other thing that he ever wanted to do or considered doing except riding races. But he was a talented guy from the beginning. Inside his house when I was there, he has three photos. Go for one, personal instinct, and Rocket Magic. He rode Rocket Magic to being third in the uh, All-American Tourney in 1975. Our thanks to Eddie Donnelly, Joe O'Connor, and Barbara Schechter. The recently concluded summer meet at Old Del Mar was both a glass half empty and half full. The number of races run and horses in each race were down which dropped by 11% the track's handle. But perhaps the more important number at Old Del Mar was zero. That's how many horses lost their lives in races in the afternoon or died in morning training. All zeros is for what the industry strives. But after the Santa Anita debacle, these numbers have settled things down. We don't know yet what made the difference. Was it stricter rules on who can race, track surface, or the weather? We'll learn more as other state-wide long past his way too short life of 61 years. Thank you so much. Mr. Donnelly for sharing so many wonderful memories of such from a Peter and the media that sounded writer. the war trumpets. Well, this doesn't there. fit their Thanks narratives like a glove. You can get us on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. 
It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup, and yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at AmericasBestRacing.net. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's in the gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.